Recent and tragic shootings at military installations show that physical threats remain potent, even in the continental United States. Yet officials missed or overlooked what, in retrospect, were clear danger signals from the visiting Saudi naval officer who killed five people in Pensacola. With some ideas for what to do next, we turn to former Marine Corps Colonel Michael Hudson, now with Clear Force. Mr. Hudson, good to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. And we should point out that for Pensacola, that hits home for you personally, doesn't it? It does. I mean, as a naval aviator myself, I went through Pensacola as a student. We'll leave the uh, the year off, right? Uh, but then I got an opportunity to come back into uh, Pensacola. One of my assignments was a flight instructor. So I was uh, assigned down there on the uh, on the VT side, basically fixed wing training. And having a long operational background and dealing with personnel, what went wrong here? And should other organizations learn from this and do differently? It sounds like for what uh, we're seeing in the open reporting is that leading indicators of potential risk were missed, right? So the in this case, the Saudi Saudi government did their internal vetting uh, in conjunction with the U.S., and that allowed the uh, the second lieutenant to join the training program in Pensacola. And then while he was down there, it appears that uh, he was posting. Social media would have been a good indicator. There were some activities that would have been indicative of risk, or at the very least would have generated some questions. But those went missed. Uh, and we don't also know if there were some conversations and other types of indicators that weren't correlated to say, hey, maybe this individual is someone we should have another conversation with. These were Saudi individuals, but it's not confined to foreigners visiting under a trusted relationship to the United States. We've had incidents of on-the-job shootings in the Postal Service and other federal agencies and in the commercial sector for decades now. What are the commonalities? Yes, something to think about there is organizations will use a set of lenses to make a, a determination on if this individual is right for the team, right? So the background check is the, is the principal one. So they look at an individual and they say, hey, this is someone who is qualified for the job and actually is someone we can trust to bring into the organization, right? That happened in the case of this, this pilot down in Pensacola. But then, as you said, broadly across other organizations, we make those determinations every day in the hiring process. But what tends to happen is as we bring those individuals on, they become trusted. That's the status they've obtained, right? We tend to shift the lenses that we use to make that hiring decision, mostly towards cyber. And then the other thing we tend to do is only really understand the individual during the hours of work. So if you think about uh, an individual that's working eight to 10 hours a day, you're blind seven months out of the year. So what's taking place in that space, those external drivers that could put someone on a path or just put them under a great deal of stress? Because in some ways, it's the same issue that people that employ those with security clearance have as the government moves toward this kind of continuous vetting of people who have security clearance to see what's happening with them financially, perhaps, or is there a divorce situation going on or those kinds of things that are available from publicly available sources. So you're not invading some private matter that, that's secret. It sounds like organizations have to maybe take a little bit of this approach for everybody. No, I think that's exactly right. And you bring up financial, and that's a really good point. So in the U.S., because I was also served active duty, so I had a, a security clearance. Back then, it was a time-based model for the most part. So if you had a top secret clearance, about every five years, they would relook at you through a periodic reinvestigation. So they understand that those goalposts of five years, that gap in time is really too large. So they're shifting to a continuous evaluation, and they're trying to shift to something that isn't a calendar-based. In essence, at some time interval, we'll pull additional data. At some time interval, we'll relook at the individual. What they're trying to shift to, and this is what organizations should be thinking about, is an event-based model. And they should map the events to organizational policy, and then they just should decide what they're looking at. And finances is a really good one to think about, not because someone who uh, has financial difficulty it will be a bad actor, 
But there's some data that suggests that you know about 70% of Americans are under financial stress. And that stress comes into the workplace, right? So it could come in the workplace and they could just be distracted and make a mistake, which could still have a negative outcome. Or in the case of organizations that have security, they might be themselves targeted. If they have a lot of financial debt and outside bad actors become aware of that, they may use that as a lever to potentially approach the individual. So that financial situation could mitigate toward theft or cybersecurity breaches or possibly even violence, depending on how the person reacts and what, the, what all the factors are. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a concept called the critical pathway. The government's using that as a way to think about risk. What it talks about is you make a good hiring decision, back to the background check. So you bring in a good individual, which would mean then that they somehow got off that good status while working for you. And you missed those leading indicators that said, hey, this individual's under stress. And finances, you know, just because you're under financial stress doesn't mean you won't do a bad thing. I want to be clear there. But what people under financial stress, a recent survey said about 35% of that, 70 I mentioned earlier, I mean, they're having physical issues associated with that, depression, angst, anger, frustration, and they bring that in to the workspace. And so they have a bad day and potentially they go off Um, and maybe they go off and it's just hazing harassment, something low level. But they work against the organizational culture and they work against the organizational mission. If you were able to see those people that were struggling and not rely on them just to say, I need help, if you could then focus uh, internal assets, employee assistance program, go, hey – we see you're struggling a little bit financially. Do that in a secure way. I think you're going to find a much better outcome. We're speaking with Michael Hudson, Senior Director of Government Solutions at Clearforce and a former Marine Corps colonel. But what about some of the subtle situations? For example, someone could own 100 guns as a hobby, but they're the gentlest person in the world. And someone could, from the outside, appear to be totally calm, but someday show up with a knife and stab people. And so you can't always look at, say, every external activity as a precursor to violence in the workplace. Someone could join a fringe group, but in their ideology could be terrible, but yet that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come to work and do harm, whereas someone could go to church every Sunday and still come back and shoot up. Are there tools and methodologies to kind of distinguish where things get subtle? Yeah, I think it's a really good question because, again, it's not a single I should say it's rarely a single event. And this is one of the challenges so organizations can have a holistic understanding of their individual. Again, a background check tends to cover a lot of ground, right? But then as you move, you tend to say, well, we have a really good cyber program, so we're comfortable that we're locked down tight on cyber and we'll see any negative activity. That tends to be a defensive mindset potentially. We want to make this more about seeing these potential risk vectors that you're talking about. Just because they come across as calm, cool, and it's all good, they could be under, under the hood there a lot of external drivers. You know, financial you said is one. There could be some low-level criminal activity, some court activity, um, all of these things that take place away from the workplace. But then you correlate that with what they're doing on the job. So now you see some cyber activity that might be concerning. We had mentioned social media earlier. And now you have this picture and you go, hey, there's a lot of indicators here. This is that critical pathway model. You go, maybe we need to somehow correlate those in a single digital environment in real time, tie that back to organizational policy, right? So it's not like we're trying to hunt for bad people, right? We're not looking for nails because all we have is a hammer. We're trying to discover who these individuals are, bubble them up in the workforce and under some deal of pressure, and then engage them in a conversation early. And in some cases, it's just eyeball-to-eyeball leadership can be super helpful, right? Let's just go get a Coke and figure out what's going on. That first pass at the leadership level informed by good data um, can make a big difference. Now, in the case of the Pensacola shooter from Saudi Arabia, there were indications of possible violence and extreme views on social media. And I guess maybe one of the tough decisions is whether social media reflects what someone's going to do or does it encourage them to do worse than they might have thought of 
before social media. I, so, I sometimes wonder that myself. Yeah, social media is interesting, and um, the government is is looking at uh, as a way to to use that, and, and in some cases already our organizations are as well. Um, they're looking at that as an opportunity to see what individuals might be saying out in the open um, that could portend that this individual, again, is at risk. The key of all of this to discover these individuals who potentially could do bad things in the organization, either purposely or are on accident um, or not even knowing, is to try to get in front of the problem. So social media, I think, is an area where you could see if you set it up correctly, put all the right protections in place, that's, all, that's also equally as important, right? Privacy has to happen. You want to make sure you have no bias or targeting. This is where technology can help you. This is where you can make the conversation more than just discovery tools. You make it about the back-end processes. You integrate all of those, automate those into a single kind of platform, if you will, that has that back-end. And then I think you could bring social media in it and say, hey, this is these are concerning activities. Is there other data? So it seems like the big takeaway here is that organizations and federal agencies, the armed services, need to have a programmatic approach to looking at their individuals and not simply waiting until there's some exception when, as we tragically find out, it's too late. Yeah, that's unfortunate. What you see in a lot of post-bad events is that the after-action usually tends to have all of the right data points. And those same data points were visible on the front end but were missed, right? So how do you then think about that organizationally is you want to use modern technology to the max extent possible. You want to make sure you lock down legal compliance. You want to make sure that you put the guardrails in place. You want to anchor it on organizational policy so it doesn't look like you're targeting or simply just using big data. See, I mean, big data is helpful to some degree, but if you really narrow it down a lot of times, if you know where to look, it really becomes a, a, a small data problem, having yeah. the right data at the right time. The right data as opposed to all the data. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's a, a lot of tools out there that bring in a significant amount of it and then try to clean it up and, and all make it into a, an indicator, and there's some value there for sure. But if you think about organizationally, what are the things the organization concerned about, right? Identify those in policy. I mean, as an example, most companies probably have an employee handbook, and in there it lists things that you're required to do. So let's say it is an example of a transportation company. There's probably a requirement that says if you're arrested for any type of uh, motor vehicle event, you're required to tell us. Could you drive a truck for us? We need to be aware of that. Even if it's in your commercial private life, it still could impact the company. So if you don't have a way to determine or discover that without the individual doing it themselves, now you have a gap, right? And I think that's a way to think about that. What are the requirements that you have in your company? What are the requirements put on you by the government or other vendors or potentially your clients? Have you correlated those into policy, programmatics to your point, and then have you orchestrated your program to capture those in a way that protects the individual and the company? Michael Hudson is Senior Director of Government Solutions at Clearforce and a former Marine Corps colonel. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, pleasure being here. Thanks so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash Podcast One to learn more and start your free trial.